The views of the United States government. This is VOA News. I'm Tommy McNeil. The United States has vetoed an era back and widely supported U.N. resolution demanding an immediate humanitarian ceasefire in the Israel-Hamas war. The vote Tuesday in the 15-member Security Council was 13-1, with the United Kingdom abstaining. The vote reflects the wide global support for ending the more than four-month war, which started when Hamas militants invaded southern Israel, killing about 1,200 people and taking 250 others hostage. Since then, more than 29,000 Palestinians have been killed in Israel's military offensive, according to the Gaza Health Ministry. It was uh, the third U.S. veto of a Security Council resolution demanding a ceasefire thus far. The World Food Program has paused deliveries of food to isolated northern Gaza because of increasing chaos across the country. In the territory, it's hiking fears of potential store of starvation. A study by the U.N. Children's Agency warned that one in six children in the north are acutely malnourished. Entry of aid trucks into the besieged territory has sharply declined by more than half the past two weeks. According to U.N. figures, overwhelmed U.N. and relief workers said aid intake and distribution has been crippled by Israeli failure to ensure the convoy's safety. And uh, this also amid its advancing assault and a breakdown in security with uh, hungry Palestinians frequently overwhelming trucks to take food. Again, the World Food Program now saying it has paused deliveries altogether of food to isolated northern Gaza. More at voanews.com. Again, voanews.com. This is VOA News. Prosecutors say that a former FBI informant charged with making up a multi-million dollar bribery scheme involving U.S. President Joe Biden as his son Hunter and a Ukrainian energy company had contacts with officials affiliated with Russian intelligence. Prosecutors said that in a court filing urging a judge to keep Alexander Smirnov behind bars while he awaits trial, but the U.S. Magistrate Judge Daniel uh, Alberts allowed Smirnov to be released from custody on the electronic GPS monitoring. He is charged with falsely reporting to the FBI in June 2020 that executives associated with the Ukrainian energy company Burisma paid Hunter and Joe Biden $5 million each in 2015 or 2016. Russian President Vladimir Putin has declared that Moscow has no intention to deploy nuclear weapons in space, claiming that the country only has developed space capabilities similar to what the U.S. has. Putin's statement follows last week's White House confirmation that Russia has obtained a troubling anti-satellite weapon capable, and also, although it is not operational yet, the White House National Security Spokesman John Kirby said it would violate the International Outer Space Treaty, but also declined to comment on whether the weapon is nuclear capable. Putin said Tuesday that we always have been categorically against and continue to be against the deployment of nuclear weapons in space. He added that Russia only has developed space capabilities the other nations, including the United States, have. 
The U.S. Supreme Court has left in place the admissions policy at an elite public high school in Virginia, despite claims that it discriminates against highly qualified Asian Americans. The federal appeals court in Richmond had upheld the revamped admissions policy at the Thomas Jefferson High School for Science and Technology, frequently cited among the best in the nation. James Samuel Lito and Clarence Thomas dissented from the order Tuesday, rejecting an appeal from parents. The appeals court essentially ruled that intentional race discrimination is constitutional so long as it is not too severe. Alito wrote in his dissent the high court's action followed its June decision, striking down admission policies at colleges and universities that took the count of race into effect. Divers have recovered the body of an 11-year-old girl from the state of Texas in a river days after she disappeared. Authorities say they are preparing to file murder charges against a friend of the girl's father. I'm Tommy McNeil, BOA News. Welcome to the Break Africa from the Voice of America. I'm James Barty, Washington. Today is Wednesday, February 21st. And here are some of the stories we are covering. The African Development Bank says the high cost of living in Africa could cause unrest. The three basic needs of life, food, clothing, and shelter. Nobody can survive without them. And that is where the level Nigerians are heading to. So people are becoming restless. The Prime Minister of the DRC resigns and his government dissolved. Some analysts say the African Union has made no significant progress on resolving the Somalia-Ethiopia dispute. Somali women parliamentarians seek constitutional changes to achieve equal representation. Senegalese voters may know any day now when their country's presidential election will get back on track. The whole question is when do we start? There are people who believe that we can start the campaign next week so that the election will be held either on the 10th of uh, March or on the 17th of March. And the United States vetoes an Arab back to UN Security Council resolution calling for an immediate ceasefire in Gaza. Those stories plus our Black History Month presentation are coming up on Daybreak Africa. The African Development Bank is warning that the rising cost of energy, food, and other commodities in several African countries, including Angola, Ethiopia, and Kenya, could trigger social unrest. Already, people in Africa's most populous country, Nigeria, have been marching to protest the high cost of living, prompting the government to release national reserves of grain. Timothy Obiezu reports from Abuja. The African Development Bank's notice was contained in its biannual Africa Macroeconomic Performance Outlook publication released last week. The bank said in its 2024 forecast that energy and food prices increases, along with a currency depreciation in Angola, Ethiopia, Kenya and Nigeria, could spark internal conflict despite Africa showing overall economic growth. The bank also said conflicts in Eastern Europe and the Middle East could trigger supply disruptions, exacerbate inflation across the world, and make Africa's situation more precarious. This as protests over hunger and the cost of living grow in Nigeria. On Monday, hundreds of people demonstrated in southwestern Oyo State, asking authorities to take steps to bring down the cost of food or resign from office. 
Security analyst Senator Iribu agrees with the African Development Bank's projections. It's obvious for even to the blind to see that there will be social unrest because the three basic needs of life, food, clothing, and shelter, the most important is feeding. Nobody can survive without food. And that is where the level Nigerians are heading to. So people are becoming restless. In fact, if one-tenth of what happens in Nigeria happens to every other place, there will be serious unrest. The African Development Bank says Africa has several rapidly growing economies such as Ivory Coast, Libya, Niger, Rwanda, and Senegal. But the bank says performance varies from country to country depending on economic policies. Nigerian President Bola Tinubu embarked on bold economic reforms, including the scrapping of expensive fuel subsidies and floating of the country's currency upon taking office last May. While authorities say the policies are bound to pay off, the immediate shocks are having an impact on the economy. Last week, Nigeria's inflation hit 29.9%, its highest mark since mid-1996. In response, authorities ordered the release of 102,000 metric tons of grain, including rice and maize, to lower food prices. On Tuesday, Nigeria's chief of defense staff, Major General Christopher Musa spoke to journalists in Abuja about the situation. The entire world is feeling the heat. It's not only Nigeria. So it's not only peculiar to Nigeria as a whole. Uh, probably recently we've had a, little, a few riots here and there. Yes. Uh, why I'm happy is that the government too is also not sleeping. The government too is stepping up to, uh, to ensure that um, they address these challenges. Uh, you've seen that uh, greens have been opened. Uh, measures are put in place to be able to provide succor. Uh, all over the country. Uh, the issue of dollar and the exchange rates, everything is tied to it, and that's why we're having these issues on ground. The Africa Development Bank says economic growth in Africa is expected to average 3.8% and 4.2% in 2024 and 2025, respectively, higher than projected global averages in the same period. But protesters say unless they can afford food and life's basics, they will continue to march in the streets. Timothy Obiezu, VOA News, Abuja, Nigeria. Senegalese voters may know any day from now when their country's presidential election is back on track. The election had originally been scheduled to take place February 25th before they were abruptly postponed by President Macky Sall and codified by Parliament. But there were two major developments on Tuesday. First, 15 out of 20 candidates approved to take part in the election's call for them to take place no later than April 2nd. The date that President Macky Sall is suspected to leave office. Second, the country's Constitutional Council republished the list of qualified candidates with little or no change. Senegalese political analyst Ibrahim Akan tells me the Constitutional Council is right for refusing to add new candidates. They have the right to appeal to the public or to the different institutions for their participation to the election. But the thing is that the list is already set by the Constitutional Council, and I think the Constitutional Council will not come back again and reopen the list. And I think it's over. Those who are not on the list can wait the next five years to prepare their participation. But let me ask you about the call by these candidates for the election to be held no later than April 2nd. Is that feasible? Well, 
currently it's possible if they shorten the duration of uh, the campaign. You know, usually in Senegal, the campaign for presidential election is three weeks. But the campaign for legislative is two weeks. And people believe that because they can do the campaign for legislative in two weeks, they can do that campaign also in a two weeks. So now the whole question is when do we start? There are people who believe that we can start the campaign next week so that the election will be held either on the 10th of uh, March or on the 17th of March. Because usually in Senegal, there is two rounds. The second round may be held just one week before the handover of power, which means that uh, Macky Sall will be able to hand over the power to the new elected president. I think that's what people believe, that the president may be announcing probably tomorrow because he needs to adopt a decree in that regard. They are still discussing with many, many actors. So hopefully that can be done. Because if the election first round is not held by the 17th of March, it means that the new president will come in after the 2nd of April. And after the 2nd of April, Macky Sall will not be there. In that case, the Constitutional Council will come in first to have a say on the end of Macky Sall tenure. And then probably because the Constitution said the that the Speaker of the Parliament can take over for three months and the Speaker can organize the modalities during the three-month period. That's possible. But everybody wants the election to be held before the departure of Macky Sall because that will mean that we are still in the time frame of the Constitution. Ibrahim Makan is a Senegalese political analyst. He was speaking with us from the capital, Dakar. The United States warned Rwanda and the Democratic Republic of Congo at the UN on Tuesday that they must walk back from the brink of war. According to French news agency AFP, Kinshasa, the UN, and Western countries say Rwanda is supporting the M23 rebel group operating in eastern DRC, an allegation that Kigali denies. Meanwhile, DRC Prime Minister Jean-Michel Sama Lukonda resigned on Tuesday, leading to the dissolution of his government. Joining us for more on these developments from Goma in eastern DRC is reporter al Katanti Sebiti Jaffa. Coming from Kinshasa, the latest news from DRC is the resignation of the Prime Minister Jean-Michel Samarokonde. 20th February was the last date given to all voted parliament members to choose between their mandate or their other occupation politically. And the Prime Minister Samuel Konde decided to resign so that the President Tisekedi can now appoint a new Prime Minister to create a new government of DRC. With the resignation of the Prime Minister, what happens to the rest of the government? The Prime Minister is the head of government, and when he resigned, this means that all his government will follow him. And this is what happened in the Democratic Republic of Congo today. We can say that the Samarokonde government is not anymore the government of DRC, but still allowed to operate because we have some pending affairs and current affairs 
They will continue working as ministers till when the president of DRC will appoint a new prime minister, the one who will create a new government. We understand there have been some development uh, a week ago or so. Two South African soldiers died in the operation near Goma. What's the latest about that? Bodies of the two South African soldiers who were killed in Mubambiro last week were repatriated today in South Africa. The government of South Africa didn't allow journalists to cover the ceremony, but the body landed in South Africa today in order to be buried in their country of origin. We know in the theater, we have South African troops, we have the DRC forces assisted by the FDLR, and then the M23. Bring us up to date. What's the latest about the conflict itself? The on-ground situation is still the same. We are observing a statue quo in the front line of Sake, where FRDC is still controlling the city and M23 controlling all hills around the city of Saki. It was reported also today that M23 launched a rocket in the city of Saki, which killed two people and injured some civilian in the same city of Saki. And this is since the last week, day by day, M23 is killing civilian when launching rockets in the city of Saki. That was reporter Jaffa Al-Katanti speaking with us from Goma in the Eastern Democratic Republic of Congo. You are listening to Daybreak Africa on the Voice of America. I'm James Bucky in Washington. Today is Wednesday, February 21st. For more Africa news and features, visit our website at voaafrica.com. Connect with us on all social media platforms. We are on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. A UN official on Monday said that the African Union made no significant progress in resolving the Somalia-Ethiopia dispute at the recent AU summit. The dispute involves a memorandum of understanding signed earlier this year between Ethiopia and Somaliland, a breakaway region of Somalia considered a, its territory. Views Douglas Mpuga reached Abdi Ismail Samata, a professor at the University of Minnesota and a senator in the Somali parliament, for his take on the AU stance on this dispute. I think actually that both EGAD and AU made a serious decision, uh, which said that all countries, Ethiopia, should uh, respect the territorial integrity of each state. That's a diplomatic way of saying Ethiopia, what you have done, it breached that AU United Nations law. And so that's one to think. The second thing is not really a dispute between Somalia and Ethiopia. It's a question of Ethiopia signing an agreement with a provincial leader in Somalia, which is against international law. And, and so it's really for the Ethiopian government and the prime minister in particular to recognize the mistakes that they have made, and then begin to converse uh, with the Somalis in order to be able to move forward by withdrawing from the local mem uh, memorandum of agreement that they have signed with uh, sort of a provincial leader. And the African Union seems to be uh, uh, sort of a soft paddling on that, and there's no other way to resolve this issue at all except for the Ethiopians to withdraw, and then if they want to have a commercial access to Somali ports, 
then that should be a very straightforward. So this is a relatively very simple matter if the Ethiopian Prime Minister can sort of undo the damage that he has done to the neighborhood in my mind. Yeah, but it appears uh, Ethiopia's Prime Minister or the Ethiopian government is not willing to do that and they're standing firm on their deal with Somaliland, despite the fact that major international organizations have voiced respect for Somalia's sovereignty and territorial integrity. Now, why, do, why don't you think AU should have a common voice on this issue? If you know the history of the African Union, always been paper tiger. That's the African Union has been a paper tiger. They rarely ever has it been able to solve any questions, whether it's of this kind or others. I mean, it's boiling. The African Union has been virtually helpless. The Southern Sudan difficulties, by and large, they have been very helpless. The stuff that's going on in the Sahel of uh, from West Africa to East Africa, the African Union has been helpless. Give you a question, they have been helpless. So it's not the first time the African Union has made declarations without being able to push those declarations and turn them into material objects on the ground. That was Abdi Ismail Samatar, a professor at the University of Minnesota and a senator in the Somali parliament. He spoke from the Somali capital, Mogadishu, with Douglas Mpuga. The Somali parliament on Tuesday concluded a debate on the first of 15 chapters of the Constitution, which is being brought before the legislative bodies for amendments. Opposition politicians have warned against changes to the document without broad-based consultations with all stakeholders. Meanwhile, Somali women parliamentarians are seeking changes to key articles to achieve equal representation. Reporter Harun Maruf of the Somali Survey spoke with Senator Saredo Mohamed Hassan shortly after the debate. There's two articles. One is Article 3 and Article 8. That two articles, uh, one is talking about proportional in uh, participation in the politics, and one is talking about people and uh, censorship. So tell me about Article 3. How do you want that article written? We want the inclusive quota bill of women participation to be stated in that article. We want to write the article as this. We want it to be women should be participated in all three uh, levels of the government with 30% proportion representation. And why do you think that's important? In Somalia, we know that women participation is uh, very low. In 2016, 2021, it was 26%. Instead of going up, it went down. Now it's 19 or 20%. So in, in order to secure the women participation in the parliament and the equity of being in the politics as our counterparts male, we want to write that 30% in the constitution today. And Article 8 talks about citizenship. What kind of changes do you want to make to this article? We want equality between male and female. We want to write down in that article that any child that is born by Somali mother or Somali father should take the Somali citizenship. And what does it say about citizenship to children, to parents of Somali origin and a foreign parent? There is nothing stated there, but there is a law written in 1960 that is saying if Somali women marries a foreigner man, her children cannot take the citizenship of a Somali. So if we did not write now in the constitution, that law goes on. 
Senator Saredo Mohamed Hassan is a female Somali member of parliament. She spoke from Mogadishu with reporter Harun Maruf of the Somali Language Service. The United States on Tuesday again vetoed an Arab-backed United Nations Security Council resolution calling for an immediate ceasefire in Gaza. But this time, Washington proposed its own draft that calls for a temporary ceasefire and rejects an Israeli ground offensive in Rafah without civilian protection. It is the strongest leverage yet that President Joe Biden has used towards Israel, a sign that his patience with Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu is running thin. White House Bureau Chief Patsy Wadikatsura has this report. Israel continues strikes on Gaza's southern city of Rafah, near the border with Egypt, where more than a million Palestinians, some displaced multiple times by the war, seek safety. Their fate was discussed by diplomats in New York, where on Tuesday the United States again vetoed an Arab-backed UN resolution demanding an immediate ceasefire in Gaza. It's the third U.S. veto since Israel's military offensive on the Palestinian enclave that followed Hamas' October 7th attack on southern Israel. Palestinian U.N. envoy Riyad Mansour called the move reckless and dangerous. Shielding Israel even as it commits the most shocking crimes while exposing millions of innocent Palestinian civilians to its wrath and more untold horrors. It is not Israel that should be protected by the veto. It is Palestinian children, women and men who must be protected by this council acting now. The U.S. proposed its own draft resolution that calls for a temporary ceasefire in Gaza up to six weeks, only after a hostage deal between Israel and Hamas is secured. The U.S. is pushing for the deal with Egypt and Qatar. It also condemns the October 7th attack and makes clear that Hamas has no place in future governance of Gaza. In addition, our draft states there can be no reduction of territory in the Gaza Strip and rejects, as we have before in Resolution 2720, any forced displacements of civilians in Gaza. It also highlights the concerns many council members have regarding the fate of civilians in Rafah, making clear that under current circumstances, a major ground offensive into Rafah should not proceed. Skeptics see the U.S. resolution as a diplomatic ploy that would prolong Palestinian suffering. Israel has warned that unless the hostages held by Hamas are freed by the start of Ramadan on March 10th, it will push on with a ground offensive in Rafah. Every day there are threats and statements. We don't know where to go. However, the U.S. resolution does show Washington's hardening stance on Israel's conduct of the war. This is the first time that the U.S. has proposed a text which really does include some fairly strong implicit criticism of Israel's campaign in Gaza and the situation in the West Bank. And I think that the Biden administration may be sending a subtle sign that it will continue to protect Israel at the UN, but its patience is not limitless. Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu has vowed not to bow to international pressure. This week, his war cabinet is meeting President Joe Biden's top advisor, Brett McGurk, who will push Israel to agree on the hostage deal and hold off from a ground campaign in Rafah. Patsy Wida Huswara, Viewing News, Washington.
It is time now for our Black History Month and African History presentation for today, February 21st. On this day, 1936, Barbara Jordan was born in Houston, Texas. She became the first African-American woman to be elected to the U.S. House of Representatives. Jordan passed away January 17, 1996. Also on this day, 1965, Malcolm X was assassinated by three black men while he was speaking in Harlem, New York City. Malcolm was born in Omaha, Nebraska in 1925. His name at birth was Malcolm Little, but he changed his last name to the letter X after he became a member of the Nation of Islam. Like many black Muslims then, Malcolm believed that the letter X stood for the true African name of each African American who was taken from Africa by slavery. On this day in 1940, one of the civil rights pioneers, John Lewis, was born in Troy, Alabama. His family members were sharecroppers, but Lewis overcame poverty and political marginalization to educate himself. In 1963, Lewis was elected president of the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee. In 1986, Lewis was elected to the U.S. Congress. He died July 17, 2020. Did you know that Carolyn Robertson Patton was the first woman and the first black to head the United States Peace Corps organization? She was appointed by President Jimmy Carter in 1977 to be the director of the Peace Corps. And those are your Black History Facts for today, February 21st. And that's it for this Wednesday, February 21st edition of Daybreak Africa. We thank you for coming aboard with us this morning. For more African news and features, visit our website at voaafrica.com. Connect with us on all social media platforms. We are on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. We are also on YouTube, where you can watch our TV shows, Africa 54, Straight Talk Africa, and Red Carpet. On behalf of the Daybreak Africa team, I am James Barty in Washington, wishing that you will have a lovely day. Thank <laughs> you.